We're continuing in our series of messages from the gospel according to John. The message became flesh. Why do we revere certain people, uh, even centuries after they've passed on? I think of people like Thomas Jefferson. He had a key part in composing the constitution of our nation. We honor people like George Washington. Well, he served as our first president. We attach glory to great feats or things that we view as a positive contribution to the world. So what exactly has God done that would cause us to attach glory to him? Well, that's what Jesus is going to be talking about in the passage we'll be looking at today. We're in John chapter 12, verses 20 through the first half of 36, and I've titled the message, The Glorious Father. Let's get started in verse 20. Now, certain Greeks were among those who had come up to worship at the feast. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and were asking him, saying, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip goes and tells Andrew. Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus. This is a very interesting little tidbit here, and perhaps even more interesting because uh, this is the last mention we have in John's Gospel of these Greeks. Um, we don't even know if they ever saw Jesus or not because they kind of drop out of the story. Uh, and what Jesus has to say about all this uh, is related to this, but, but doesn't perhaps on first uh, reading appear to be. It seems like he's talking about something else. Uh, so why is this in here? Well, first of all, let me just say a few things about this. this these Greeks need not have been from Greece. Uh, Jews in the first century basically divided the world between Jews and people who were not Jews. And if you were not a Jew and had basically embraced the way of life of the Greco-Roman culture, which had been extended about 300 years before by Alexander the Great throughout this whole area, uh, then the Jews would just refer to you as a Greek. You're not a Jew, you're a Greek. Um, so these possibly were not all the way from Greece. They could have been from somewhere closer. Uh, could have been maybe from Asia Minor or even Syria uh, in the north uh, of Palestine. But whatever their actual place of living, uh, they happen to be among those who have come up to the feast. The fact that they're described as Greeks uh, probably indicates that they had not gone through with the rite of circumcision and were uh, people who were non-Jewish but were interested in the Jewish religion. Uh, they could have come to the feast to worship but would not have been allowed beyond the court of the Gentiles, the outermost court in the whole temple complex. And they've come because uh, they are interested in the God of Israel. And they approach Philip. Now, why they approached Philip, we're not told, although perhaps John is giving us a little hint when he says that Philip was from Bethsaida. Uh, of all of the 12 apostles, only two of them had Greek names, Philip and Andrew. So the Greeks approach one of the disciples that has a Greek name. That might have been a point of connection for them. They figure, okay, well, if he has a Greek name, uh, maybe he'll listen to us. And also, the fact that he's from Bethsaida, the, la the Lake of Galilee, uh, Capernaum is kind of in the middle of, of the region of Galilee uh, on the northwestern shore. 
But uh, if you keep going around north and go to the east side of, of the Sea of Galilee, uh, you end up at Bethsaida, which is basically the last town before you get out of Galilee and into the Decapolis. Now the Decapolis was a uh, region next to Galilee on the other side of the Jordan, uh, and it, it had ten cities, and none of them were Jewish. They were all basically Gentile cities. So uh, the fact that Philip grew up in the city in Galilee closest to this region probably indicates that he was uh, more accustomed to uh, interacting with non-Jewish people, people for, that lived in the Decapolis. Uh, and I think that's the reason John puts that little parenthetical explanation there. So they come and say, sir, uh, actually the word they use is Lord, but uh, they're using it as a, as a sign of respect. Sir, uh, we'd like to see Jesus. We wanna see Jesus. And Philip uh, is not sure what to do with this request, uh, given all that's going on right now. So he goes and tells Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus. Um, so why is this little tidbit in here? Because when Jesus continues talking, he doesn't really say anything about these Greek people directly. He starts talking about dying, about his cross. Uh, what's the connection? Well, I think John is probably writing the gospel uh, of John uh, from the city of Ephesus. We're told by tradition, uh, Christians who lived in the second century and later, that after uh, Jerusalem fell to the Romans and the Jews were kind of kicked out of the area, that John ended up in Ephesus. And this would have been later, after Paul has already died. And uh, But that's probably the context in which John is writing this gospel. So he knows that a lot of the people who are going to be reading his gospel are not Jews. Even though there's a lot he has to say in here about the Jews, clearly his gospel is not just addressed to Jews. And this is a little reminder of that, that there were other people other than Jews who were, had a, a lot of interest in the Messiah, in the coming of the Christ. And Jesus, I think, in his response is going to indicate very clearly that uh, this thing that he is doing is not just for Jews. It's for all of us. It's for anyone and everyone. And uh, we have kind of a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do for the whole human race in what he's going to talk about next. Verse 23, then Jesus answers them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, if the grain of wheat having fallen into the earth does not die, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That first thing he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, three times at least previously in the gospel, we've been told it's not time yet. Uh, in fact, the very first thing Jesus did in his public ministry, changing the water to wine at the weddings of Cana, when his mother tells him, they're out of wine, Jesus, do something, Jesus tells her, woman, and that was a sign of respect back then, it wasn't disrespectful, uh, kind of think ma'am, ma'am, uh, my time has not yet come, the time is not yet here. Uh, we're told twice in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, John tells us twice where the authorities, the Jewish authorities want to arrest Jesus, but they could not because his hour had not yet come. 
Well, the wait is over. The hour has come. And when Jesus says that, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, no doubt his disciples uh, felt a shiver of excitement. Finally, Jesus is going to do it. He's finally going to step up and he's finally going to assume the throne of Israel and he is going to subdue all of the wicked nations of the world and from Jerusalem he is going to govern the world. And we who have been jockeying for positions of authority in his kingdom will have our day. The Son of Man, that reference to Daniel 7 where the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, sits on his throne and he is approached by one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and to him the Ancient of Days gives a kingdom that will last forever and he will rule all the nations of the earth. So I'm sure they were very excited to hear Jesus say it. It's the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. Finally, we don't have to worry about the Romans. We can stop worrying about the Jewish authorities. Jesus is going to put things right. But then the very next thing Jesus says, he starts talking about dying. I'm sure they were very confused. Truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen. Now, everything Jesus ever said was true. But occasionally, when he was going to say something really important, he would first say, truly, truly. And that's his way of saying, pay attention to what I'm about to say because this bit is really important. And he starts talking about wheat. You get a grain of wheat, drop it into the earth. Unless that wheat dies, unless that grain gives up all it has to give to nourish the embryo of that plant so that it can grow into a full-blown plant, that grain is going to remain alone. It will not give any fruit. But if that grain dies, if that grain gives up all it has and allows it to be consumed in the process of bringing life. It will bear much fruit. We can't read this without understanding, obviously, that Jesus is talking about himself. He is the one who has come into this cosmos, into the earth of this world sent by the Father. He is that grain of wheat who is now in the earth and he's telling his disciples, unless I am willing to die, I will remain alone. Unless Jesus is willing to die. Not a one of us throughout all of human history, from Adam until the last woman and man to be born in all of time, not a one of us will join Jesus in eternity if he does not die. But if he dies, he will bear much fruit. Some people might recoil a bit at this idea. What are we saying here? That uh, God is saving us because he's lonely? That God doesn't want to be alone? That's why Jesus came. And I think that's a misunderstanding of what Jesus is talking about here. God has all the fullness of all there is 
And all that ever could be is already found in God. There is no lack in God. There is nothing he needs. It's all in him already. Even the idea of fellowship and love and communion is built into the Godhead itself. Three in one. Eternally in perfect communion. So there's no relational need God has for us. Jesus is not saying, I need to die or I'm going to be lonely. He's saying, I need to die or you guys aren't going to be with me. He's not talking about anything he needs from us. He's talking about what we need from him. And that is the simple truth of the matter. If Jesus is unwilling to deal with the problem of sin by giving up his life, None of us will join him in eternity. The whole human race will come and go and will be gone. That's not what God wanted. God wanted to share his life and his goodness with us. And he sent Jesus to give all he had to give to be consumed in the process, to pour out his life to the very last drop and actually enter the grave, actually experience death so that in that death he could atone for the sin of the world. And in doing that, he bears much fruit. When he says, bear much fruit, he's talking about you and me. It's the not remaining alone into eternity, but inviting us to share eternity with him. That is the fruit he has come to bear by giving himself up on our behalf. We're that fruit. We live in a culture that is constantly obsessed with telling us how we need to construct our identity. Our culture is constantly pressing us and it's beginning with toddlers. All these things that we are being told we need to do to fashion this identity of ourselves. And I want to ask you to think something completely different. What impact does it have on your identity to know that if you are in Christ, you are the fruit of his life on earth? How does that impact identity? Verse 25, the one who loves his soul is destroying it. And the one who hates his soul in this world will guard it into eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there also my servant will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus lets us know what's killing us. It's that we love the way we are right now. We love our soul, not just our soul in the context of God created us. He formed man out of the dust of the earth. He breathed the breath of life into him and Adam became a living soul. 
It's not just that. This being we are created uniquely in the very image and likeness of God himself with moral and spiritual dimensions to ourselves, relational dimensions. All that we are created in the very image of God. That's not all he's talking about. He's saying who that is, that living soul is in the context of this world. We were created in the image and likeness of God, but what do we look like right now? What does this creature look like in the context of this fallen world, tainted to our cores by sin? Well, this soul, this living soul that I am in the context of this world, plagued by sin and infected with it to my very core, that is the thing, Jesus says, we need to learn to hate. If we hate that, then Jesus is going to give his life to make possible that we be rescued from that that we be given a different experience of what it is to be a soul, a living soul. But some people look at Jesus and say, you know what, I like my soul in the context it's in right now. I like my selfish nature. I like the self-serving things I want to do. I like treating other people the way I'm treating them. I like the things about me that I know are dark and wrong and not as they should be and worthy of censure and shame. But I love them and I want to revel in them and I'm going to love the soul that I am in the context of this world. And Jesus, you're never going to take that from me. I'm going to hold to it greedily like a dragon and it's going to be mine. Well, Jesus warns us, if that's what you want to do, all you're going to do is destroy your soul. Because without rescue, that's all that awaits you. You are already under the power of sin. And all sin can do is destroy you. It can't do anything else for you. So if you love your soul in the context of this world the way you are right now, you want to just stay that way, then go right ahead. But know this. You, are, you may think you're saving your soul from Jesus like he's the tyrant. In fact, you are the tyrant and you are destroying your soul. But if you say this isn't what I was created to be, I know I should be different than I am. I know my life should be different than it is. I know I should be glorious. I can feel it in my bones. There's something about God that calls out to me. I should be noble. I should be virtuous. I should be upright. And I'm not. And I hate that I'm not. I hate my soul in the context of this world. I want nothing more than for that to die. If that's the choice, then we actually guard our souls into eternal life. 
So there's a parallel here. Jesus is going to have to give up his life so that we may be redeemed. We can't redeem anything, but unless we're willing to give up this life that we have already and embrace a different life, we too will be destroyed and our lives will come to nothing. So how do we do this? How do I hate my soul in this world and embrace a different life in Christ? Jesus says, serve me. Follow me. Find out where I am and you be there. You be serving where I'm serving. You know, that's the reason we've started this kingdom prayer thing in our church life. I want us to be where God is doing stuff. And the way to know that is to ask God, what are you up to? Where do you want us? We don't want to just ask God to join us in our plans. We want to join Jesus where he is and wherever he is serving, that's where we want to be serving. And as we serve Christ, the Father honors us. The Father shares with us his honor. Jesus said, we have to hate who we are as spiritual beings in the context of this world if we want to save ourselves from destruction. How have you hated your soul in this world? Verse 27, now my soul has been troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But this is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus shares a very honest thing with his disciples here. He lets them know that he is deeply troubled by what is coming. We may think he was afraid of the cross and anybody in his right mind would be terrified of dying on a cross. It's, it's one of the cruelest forms of execution the human race has ever invented. And it's, it's psychologically and physically horrendous. It's, you're, you're nailed naked, naked out in front of the world. In such a way you can't cover yourself and anybody who wants to can gawk at you. It's humiliating. And you just hang there until you die. It's horrendous. But that's not what Jesus is so concerned about. Thousands and thousands of people have experienced that. The Romans crucified a lot of people. Jesus knew in a way that only God could know what the cross would entail because in that death, he would also be pouring out on himself the fullness of God's wrath against the sin of the world in such a way that what he would suffer would be considered valid payment for all the suffering inflicted by the sins of all creation over all time. Try to add up the agony and the misery and the horrid things that humankind has done in all of its existence. 
and try to tally how much suffering must be involved to make adequate payment for that. Jesus was going to bear in his soul the sins of the world. And when he thought of that, it terrified him. I have been deeply troubled. And he's very honest with his disciples. See, Jesus wasn't an apparition. He didn't just, uh, was like a hologram or something that just appeared to be human. He became flesh. And he fully assumed upon himself everything you and I know of existence. He knew what was coming. And he tells his disciples, what do I do? Do I just plead with the Father to rescue me from this, get me out of this? Uh, and then he says, no, that, the whole reason I came was to do this. I came to die. No. Father, glorify your name. Jesus will repeat these sentiments in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it is possible, all things are possible for you. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But then the second statement, but not my will, but your will be done. The commitment he expresses here is the same commitment he will express at Gethsemane. It's the same commitment that he will carry with himself to the grave itself. Verse 28, continuing. So a voice came from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd that stood there and heard it was saying there had been thunder. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for yours. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he was saying, indicating what kind of death he was about to die. When Jesus says, Father, glorify your name, God the Father responded audibly. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The Father says, I've already been glorifying my name in you. And I'm about to top it all off with the most glorious thing you're going to do, son. Everything Jesus has done throughout his whole ministry has been pointing to the Father and bringing glory to the Father. Jesus did not claim for himself any of that glory. He said, I can do nothing but what the Father has given me to do. The works he did, he said, these are the works of the Father. I hadn't noticed this until I started counting there are a lot of theologically significant words in the Gospel of John. Words you keep running across, and clearly they're themes that we keep returning to. For example, the word life, or living, or to live, the verb, the noun. We get all those words, add them all up. It appears 56 times in the Gospel of John. 
That's a significant word. Bearing witness. And constantly Jesus is talking about things that bear witness to who he is. And we are bearing witness to who Christ is and sharing an eyewitness testimony regarding Christ. That's a very important word to John. 47 times in both noun and verbal form. Ah, surely the most frequently used word in John is faith, the noun. Or let's turn it into the verb, to have faith, to believe and that is a significant word in the Gospel of John. 101 times we find that word. You know how many times the word Father appears in the Gospel of John? It's over 130 times. And I went and counted. You know how many of those is Jesus talking about God as Father? 120 do you get the idea that Jesus wanted us to understand that God is not just some angry deity sitting on a mountaintop somewhere raining down thunderbolts on humankind? But that when God looks at us, he looks at us the way a father looks at his children. That God is kindly disposed toward us. That he looks on us with tenderness and attachment. That God wants what is good for us, not what is wrong and bad. Jesus has been telling the world, you don't get how much the Father loves you. Enough to send me. When he says, I'm going to glorify it again, that is going to be the culminating moment of bringing glory to the Father. You wonder if God is kindly disposed toward you? Well, let me ask you this. What would you say if I said that God the Father took the only uh, perfect delight he had, the Son, who in every possible way was always perfectly aligned with him and never once did anything to displease him, was a constant, unbroken pleasure and delight to him. Those of us who are parents know that we don't have children like that. None of us were children like that to our parents. We give parents many causes uh, for uh, regret. But the father never had that with the son. The son was absolutely a perfect delight. His only begotten son, eternally perfect. And he took this perfect son and said, the only way we can rescue humankind is if someone perfect takes on flesh and assumes upon his own soul the just punishment for the sin of the world. And the father said to the son, I would like you to do that. Is there a more glorious moment than that moment when father and son together at the cross erased the authority of sin over creation. 
The Son received the full wrath of God against all sin, and the Father poured it out on Him. And together they redeemed creation. There is no more glorious moment in the history of the cosmos. As usual, the crowd doesn't get it. It's amazing that even when God does amazing things, there are always people who are going to find any and every possible explanation to ignore what just happened. God just spoke from heaven, and immediately some people say, Oh, look, thunder. But some other people say, You know what? Thunder doesn't use words. Maybe it was an angel. Now, of course, Jesus has just said, Father, glorify your name. And he says, I have glorified my name. This wasn't an angel. This was the Father himself responding. And Jesus says, it wasn't for my sake that God the Father did this. It's for yours so that you know that what I'm telling you is not some delusion. I'm not another crazy person. And he tells them, here's the, the moment has come. This world is going to be judged. This world in whose context you are to hate your own soul. This world that is dark and broken and shameful and needs to be erased. I have come to bring judgment to bear on this world. I'm going to take the ruler of this world and cast him out. In the New Testament, oftentimes Satan is described as the ruler or the prince of this world because his area of influence and authority is sin. And guess what? Every one of us is tainted by it and under its power, which means that in this world, as it stands, Satan has immense power, power and influence. Jesus says, I've come to change that. I've come to judge this wicked world and I've come to take the authorities that right now govern it and I am going to depose them. I am assuming the throne of creation. It will no longer be in the hand of sin and death and Satan. It will be in my hands. I will accomplish the purchasing back to God of creation from sin and death. And when I am lifted up, when I am raised up on that cross, I will draw all people to myself. Yes, even Greeks. John explains, he was explaining here that he was going to die by crucifixion. And the cross is what draws us to Jesus. It tells us the two things we need to know to be rescued. One, it tells us that we had a problem. That our sin was something we could do nothing about. We needed a Savior. If there had been another way, the Father would have told the Son, Guess what, Son? Never mind. They've got another way to take care of it. You don't have to go to the cross. There was no other way. So the cross tells us we are utterly, irredeemably broken. And unless we come to Christ, we have no hope. Because he alone is the adequate sacrifice for our sin. 
And the second thing the cross communicates to us is that Jesus actually wants to save us. He wouldn't have died otherwise. If he didn't want us to share eternity with him, if he didn't want to share the gift of life eternal with us, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. He loves us. And nothing communicates that the way the cross does. Jesus said his death on the cross would bring glory to the Father. Think about that for a minute. How does his death on the cross reveal to us the glory of the Father? Verse 34, so the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how is it that you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Again, it almost gets exhausting in John. Every time Jesus says something, people come back with the exact opposite. And Jesus has said, Now the Son of Man is going to be glorified by dying on a cross. And the crowd gets it. They say, wait a minute. We have always been told that the law, and they're just talking about all of Scripture right there, that the law says the Christ is going to remain forever. In Daniel 7, when the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man that kingdom, he's going to reign forever. How can you say that the Son of Man has to die on a cross? Doesn't he have to be alive to reign forever? What do you mean, son of man? Are you talking about something else? Again, as always, so many times we can't even conceive of what God is up to. And we read the things he's told us and we interpret them with our very narrow understanding and focus. And when God says, no, that's not what I'm talking about, we oftentimes turn to him and say, God, you're wrong. I've always been told that that's what the Bible says about it. You know, when you speculate about the second coming of Christ, please remember how badly people got it wrong the first time he came. And be humble and not dogmatic about it. They have this whole idea. This is what the Christ is going to come and do. He's going to establish himself as king. Jerusalem is going to be the seat of authority. And from here, we will reign the world, rule over the world. Well, that's not how he was going to do it. Christ was going to rule not just over Israel, not just over the nations of this world. He was going to rule the cosmos. And he wasn't going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. He was going to sit at the right hand of the Father on high over all of creation and govern everything. And he was going to establish a kingdom that would not need armies to extend across the face of the earth. And there's no border, no barrier, no wall you can build that is going to keep the church from expanding across the globe. That is the kingdom he was going to establish and rule over eternally. And that kingdom is alive and well today, 2,000 years later. And Christ is still on his throne and is still ruling over the nations of the earth today. But they didn't see that. God must have got it wrong. 
Verse 35, so Jesus said to them, yet a little time the light is with you. Walk about while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. The one who walks about in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Jesus responds to this objection not by getting into arguments about interpretations of Old Testament prophecies. He points them away from all those debates and just says, just pay attention to me. I am the light of the cosmos. He's already told them that. You've got the light standing right in front of you right now. What you need is not somebody to argue with your rabbis. What you need is me. So set all that aside. Set your understanding, your expectations, your demands aside and just come to me. Because I am light. And I can guarantee this to you if you come to me. You will not stumble around in darkness if you are with me. He's not saying we will become omniscient. He's not saying we'll know everything. But our lives will be lived with purpose and direction. We'll not be stumbling about dark, blindly in the darkness. Jesus will provide the light we need. Not only so that we can live in light, but so that we ourselves are transformed in the process. We become sons of light. We become characterized by the very qualities that Jesus himself has. Remember hating our soul in this world. Jesus is saying, I can infect you with light instead of sin. I can make you a son of light if you will turn to me. I love how Jesus refused to get bogged down in theological arguments and just kept getting back to the heart of the matter. Sometimes we throw up theological arguments because we don't want to come face to face with Jesus. We're in darkness. We need him. He is our light. The crowd couldn't see how dying would be better than just living and reigning on earth. Let me ask you, how was God's plan better than what the people were expecting? And think about it on a more personal level. How have you found that surrendering in faith to Jesus is better than having things your way? Jesus came to show us the glory of the Father. To let us know that the Father loves us. So great is his love, so extravagant that he was willing to take the only one whom he loved and cherished without reservation, the only one who in every way was a perfect delight to him, his beloved, only begotten son, and send him not only to live life in a world under the power and sin, but to take upon himself the sins of the world and pour his very soul out for us. 
and allow himself to be taken by death. We may not understand it all. We may have different expectations about how God should be helping us out. But if we're willing to just give all that up and take Jesus instead, he's going to make sure we find out just how glorious the Father is. He's going to free us from darkness and transform us into sons of light. He'll make us like himself, glorious. Please join me in prayer. Jesus, we are so grateful to you that you have done things in a way we could never have even dreamed of. Thank you that you establish yourself as king in such a way that every single one of us has direct access to you. Every single person on this earth has the opportunity to meet you face to face because of the way you chose to carry out your plan. God, help us to hate who we are apart from you and to surrender that and take who you want to make us instead. Jesus, I thank you that you have defeated the power that held this world and that sin no longer rules and the wicked no longer govern and that you sit on high at the right hand of the Father having been granted every authority and power that could be given. Lord, as we look out on the world today and see war and suffering and aggression and abuse, Thank you that the world is not simply in our hands. Thank you that you reign. We pray, Lord Jesus, in these days that you bring an end to suffering, that you transform human hearts in such a way that the darkness no longer lays claim over them. Lord, I pray for the rescue, not just of the victims, but of the aggressors. A transformation of heart, a restoration of unity and peace. Sometimes we feel like we can only solve the problems of the world with bullets. God, work in the world so that there's no need for them. Bring peace. Draw all people to yourself, to your cross. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.